Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. I want to take a minute to connect you to our newest sponsor, Zenkai Sports, who are here with a question for you. Why do we sweat? Our body is perfectly designed to cool us down, but most apparel companies use moisture-wicking fabrics that remove our sweat, which makes us overheat faster and actually hurts our performance. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping you cool for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. This lowers your carbon footprint and saves money, so you can be a hero with your planet and your family. Join the revolution for better apparel technology. What's in your ZNA? We've partnered with Zenkai, so if you head over to www.zenkaisports.com and use the discount code LYM20, you'll get 20% off your entire order. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the honor of speaking with Chris Poirier. Chris has been a leader in the world of human performance for close to 30 years in his role with Perform Better. The Perform Better seminars have supported the growth and knowledge base of the human performance industry and launched many of the educational careers of its presenters. Chris was born and raised in Narragansett, Rhode Island and attended Narragansett High School where he was a three-year varsity starter in football and baseball. He earned a scholarship to play football for the University of Rhode Island. He was a four-year letterman and broke the school record for all-purpose yards. He went on to become the head football coach for South Kingston High School before becoming the general manager of Perform Better in 1992. With Perform Better, Chris has organized and assembled over 250 seminars with more than 100 presenters. If you've attended a Perform Better seminar, then you've been touched by this man's leadership and commitment to the industry. Above all, he is a proud father and husband. I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Chris. Scott, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool. Actually, I've been intending to invite you to come, but I got this email from Mike Boyle about a week ago and said, you should interview Chris Poirier. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I should. And so then I reached out to you <laughs> because it's funny. I've interviewed just about every, everybody that actually um, lectures or presents at the Perform Better seminars. And you are the man who brought them all together. But before we get into all that, what did little Chris Poirier dream of being when he was a little boy? Wow. You know, I think of every little boy that played football or was very competitive as a kid. Um, you know, obviously had visions of playing, playing football my entire life, but, uh, <laughs> not realizing, uh, that you can't do that, you know, is, uh, um, things, things change along the way. So I, I, I never really 
had one desire of something that I wanted to do. You know, I never really said, hey, this is what I want to be. I want to be this person. I mean, I changed my major in college, I think, five times. I talk about <laughs> an indecisive uh, young student athlete. But uh, So were you a running back as a football player? I was a running back, yeah. Okay. And what was your favorite team growing up? Uh, you know what? I, it's, I mean, I've always been a Patriot fan, but growing up as a Patriot fan was, was very difficult. <laughs> a completely different story now. So it's, you know, I can brag right now as uh, I wasn't always able to brag, especially the first half of my life. <laughs> Most new Pats fans don't know how bad it was back in the bat, the old good old days, so to speak. It's <laughs> true. They don't realize that, yeah, that, you know, you couldn't even see the Pats on TV because they never sold out <laughs> unless you went to the game was the only way you could see them or they played on the road. That was the only way you could see them play because yeah. they did, they had the black block out because they didn't sell out of the home game. So yeah, it was, uh, most people don't even know what that is now, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. I just, re I just remember I was a big fan of football in those days and John Hanna was like, uh, their superstar, but he was yeah. a big O, o lineman of the day, so to speak. But, yeah. That's awesome. So you you played running back. What was the influence to get into football? Did, did dad take you out to the the park and you got started, or did you just have this this inkling that you wanted to play? You know what? I I was very competitive, and I, I played all sports, baseball and basketball. You know, I was always always enjoyed sports. I had older brothers. I have a big family. Okay, so I have a family of ten. Wow. Um, and I was the youngest, so I had you know five older brothers that. Um, you know, pushed me in probably every single direction. One, you know, one pushed me in football, one pushed me in basketball. And so um, it just so happened that football was the one that I sort of, I, I sort of to be much more competitive at and, 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 and sort of had a liking to it. I sort of liked the game, enjoyed the game. So I sort of, you know, baseball was my first, I, I can honestly say baseball was my first true love. Um, and you know, I, you know, I thought I was going to be a baseball player when I was seven, eight years old, but mm. I can't even watch a baseball game now for nine innings. I mean, I, I'm going <laughs> three innings and that's about a, my max capacity. <laughs> so 10 kids out. What, what was that like growing up with 10 kids in a family uh, of 10? Well, the youngest of 10, you, you had to be a fast eater because... <laughs> <laughs> as you know growing up in a french family it, 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 no. there's there's no there's there's no one that's going to uh they're, they're not going to look at you and say here help yourself first it's it's you help yourself first <laughs> so if you wanted to eat anything you had to eat fast <laughs> that's awesome and what were that you, you said you had five older brothers what was which one was most influential on you? Which one was kind of your, your big brother, so to speak? You know, a bunch of, I have, uh, my brother David who passed away years ago was probably my own, my most influential in football. Mm -hmm. Um, even though there was, there was 10 years difference between us. Um, but my, the one closest was my brother, Kevin, probably. And he's, he's about five years difference. And um, he was probably the one that I was closest with, with because it was around the longest in the house. So I talked to uh, Todd Durkin, who who speaks at your seminars a lot. And Todd is a, a fan from a family of eight. Do you guys yeah. ever chat about growing up? And we, and <laughs> we do, we do. And actually, uh, Todd played for William and Mary, and we were obviously the same conference. He was a couple of years. He came in just after I left, but. Uh, mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, we, we, we do, we talk about those big families and they're scattered over all over the place too. So, <laughs> so you go, you play football and you, uh, you finish and you decide to go, uh, to the university of Rhode Island. And you just mentioned that you went through five different majors while you were there. So tell me about deciding to go to school. What was it really because you were going there to play football and you kind of discovered education or what was the process there? You know, I think it was a little bit of both. I think if I wasn't playing football, I'm not sure if I would have went to college. Hmm. Um, so I think you probably that, that, that football was a main reason why I went to college. Um, you know, even though it's sad to say right now, and I hope my kids don't listen to this, but uh, um <laughs> It's, uh, it was probably, it's, it was, you know, I was given the opportunity and, uh, I just, I really, as an 18, 19 year old, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I thought maybe I wanted to be a teacher and I tried, you know, I started in, you know, secondary education. Then I went to, you know, and I, I was like, I'm not really secondary education, went to elementary education. I'm like, ah, they're still a little too old. Maybe I want to go a little younger. And then I was like early childhood, you know, development. And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to work with, with, with three, four five year olds. So, um, it's sort of, I sort of swayed around all over the place and sort of leaned a little bit towards counseling. Um, you know, as I was, uh, you know, as I was going on, thankfully I redshirted my freshman year. So I knew I had, I had a fifth year, option at the university. So I, I could, I could make those decisions of taking a few classes and starting off in a major and then chain. How many of your siblings went to university? Um, four brothers and, uh, one sister. Okay. And were your parents uh, college educated or were they just no. a hardworking family? Was you no, from just, sort of a working family kind of thing? Yeah. Just hard. Yeah. Hardworking family. Yeah. What does your dad do? Um, my dad actually worked for the telephone company, wow. worked for them for 40 years. And what did he re- represent to you in terms of, you know, things that you learned from your dad? What did you learn from him? You know, it's, 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 it's strange. It's the, and I always tell this, it's, I, I really didn't have a great relationship with my dad, but it's mm. probably growing up, you know, growing up the youngest of 10 and there's 16 years difference. So mm. I think, I, I think it was a little different. I think he lost all of his energy by the time I was, you know, by, by the time I was there that uh, hmm. didn't quite have the same upbringing as my older brothers had. That's the reason for some of your older butter, brothers representing a little bit of your this mentorship, so to speak. This is true. And my mom did pass away when I was seven. So that was, oh, wow. okay. was a turning point as well for, I'm sure it was a difficult time for him as well as it was for everybody. So. Yeah. So everybody had to rally around that as a family, I guess, when you guys yeah. were young. Yeah. So you finish uh, college and you decide to go into coaching. What's, what's the re- reason for that uh, experiment in your life? <laughs> you know, just, it was the opportunity was there, right. As soon as I, as soon as I graduated the town that I actually grew up in um, was, it was uh, the head coaching job just became available. Okay. So it was one of those things like, Hey, you know, what are you going to do right now? I, I, I wasn't quite sure what, what I was doing. I wasn't quite sure what direction I was going in counseling. If I was going to go into probation and parole or, or, um, going to uh, school counseling. And I just, I said, well, let me give coaching a shot. Let me hmm. see it. I'm, I'm really going to like this. Um, and you did, or you didn't, what happened there? You know, I had, 
I coached for three years and uh, I, I, I can honestly say, and I tell this to everyone that I, I got in it too quickly. I, I didn't do the steps. You know, I was mm. a 22 year old head high school coach to a team that just won the state championship. Wow. And they won it in division. They won it in division three and they were moving up to division two and they, we lost a ton of kids. So mm. it was sort of, you know, I wanted the opportunity. I thought I could handle it. And it just, you know, when you're 22 year old coaching 18, 17 year old kids, there's not much of a difference in there. And, you know, one of, one of my first life lessons happened right at that, you know, in that very first year was that not all, not all kids see the game as you see the game or feel the game as you feel it. You know, some are just being forced out there by the parents. Some are just there because of their friends are on the team. And, you know, it, so it was never something that, you know, I sort of went through playing my career with blinders on and felt that everybody was there because they mm. loved the sport and wanted to be out there. And sort of that was the first, mm. that was the first taste of it, that, that everyone is a little bit different and not everyone thinks of it the same that I did. So. That's interesting. So what, what makes you transition or decide that you don't want to do this and do something else? Um, you know, it was, we, 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 we had some different teams. Um, my going into my, I got the opportunity. I didn't, I didn't say this to you in my bio, but I got the opportunity to go overseas and play football um, over in Vienna. Um, oh, cool. Austria. And I went over, uh, I went over in, uh, it was actually in January, which was off season for us here. We didn't start back up until July, August. And so I went over in, I went over in uh, January. We played the spring and I, uh, came back and came back actually like right after the 4th of July. Hmm. So when I came back, the, the thing was when I went over to play and I came back, it was sort of like, I, this was, you know, I realized that I was, and I was a player coach over there. So okay. it was, you know, I was coaching and playing. And at that time I felt like, you know what, I needed to move on. I needed to, I, I, I this was, you know, I, I knew coaching was not going to be a career. And if it was going to be a career, then if I was going to do it, I'd have to go back as, you know, college intern and, 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 and do it the right way, go mm-hmm. through, you know, and, and, um, and I just felt that, you know, this is just not what I want to do. I didn't, you know, I love the game. I just didn't love coaching the game. Hmm. So there's a lot of interesting parallels between you and Todd, actually with the big family. And then you both went to Europe to play football. That's uh, yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so tell me about how you, you become, involved with perform better what is what is perform better when you start with it and and how do you get in and i'm <laughs> sure there was like three people in the, in the room at the time or whatever what, yeah, how, does exactly. it, how does that all go down i'm sure people would love to hear that story <laughs> well it's it, how everything starts is actually you know obviously if my family member i knew the owner of mf athletic company which is the track and field division has been around for for years and i i knew I knew the family who owned MF Athletic. My actually, my sister cut, cut, um, cut the hair of of the mom who who owned MF Athletic, and um, Bill Falk, who was the founder of it, was um, he was a track and field coach at the university where I played at URI. So I knew Bill. I knew of him. I knew of the company. Um, it was just. It basically was just. You know. Um, just it was just perfect timing they would they wanted to come off and start off with um 
this this catalog that would basically start to go off towards other athletes, prefer, preferably football players, mm-hmm. and to basically get football players to uh, or coaches to train their athletes sort of in the way that track trains their athletes in the sense that, you know, power, speed, agility, you know, strength, all key components um, were, are valuable in all the different events in track and field. So they, he wanted to sort of get this – get this off the ground going after football coaches. So, and it was, you know, I think, I, I think um, Grace knew from my sister talking to her that I was basically, I was, this was, um, I was looking, I was basically getting tired after I came back from Europe and this was going to be my last year of coaching mm. um, that I was going to be, you know, looking to do something else. And it just so happened that they were looking for someone to go out after football. So it was like a perfect, you know, perfect scenario and so yeah I came in with one person in the company um, we would just get ready to start up the first catalog um, thankfully we had track and field which was already in it's I believe it's 16th year at the time um, and thriving that we that was being able to hold perform better together and allow us to do uh, to do what we had to do to get that off the ground mm. um, and that's what sort of it's sort of you know First starting off, there was, you know, it's, it's tough starting off in a business where there's no business to start right. off. So I was track sales. Um, if I was going to sell something, I might as well sell, you know, if it wasn't perform better stuff at the time. But, you know, it, it, was, it was nice to get perform better off the ground from a zero company to where we are today. What attracted you to, um, to the proposition of selling or representing a brand or, you know, these these goods and stuff, because it's not, not something that everybody is attracted to doing. So what, what was attractive to you, the relationship building, the connections, the, I think probably a little bit of all of that, Scott, uh, the, the relationship part, I think the opportunity, you know, I think it was, it was something that was starting from nothing and trying to see if we could grow it and see how we could grow it. Um, the people in it, you know, the people, everyone that we were dealing with were all coaches, you know, and, and, Despite that I didn't have a good, um, you know, a, a good history in coaching as far as it wasn't what I wanted to do, I enjoyed being around coaches. I enjoyed being around athletics um, in any type of sports performance. So I was fitting right in mm-hmm. to the people that we were talking to and, 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 and the people who are our customers. So it was in that sense, it was really enlightening. And then I had obviously, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't dealing with 17-year-old high school athletes I was dealing, you know, I was dealing with now coaches and mm. it just seemed to be, a, it was just an easier, an easier relationship for me to, to develop. That's awesome. So tell me about how the idea of perform better seminars, um, the genesis of that, what, what cre- creates that in for you guys? Well, we had, you know, at first we, we've always been since day one, of of having a speaker at a seminar. Vern Gambetta was our first consultant. And, um, you know, we, Vern was our consultant that we had speak and we had him go out to the NSCA. We would, we would bring him in to speak. And there would be about 10 to 15 different seminars a year that we would bring Vern into to speak. And and I, I so you guys to, would act as a sponsor for them would, to, you know, like at the NSCA conference to deliver a presentation. Correct. Gotcha. Correct. Okay, cool. Right. So we would, we would bring them in and, and, and again, everything that they spoke about was always about education. It wasn't about perform. They weren't speaking about perform better. They were just mm-hmm. speaking about it, education. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and sort of obviously it was up to me to to relate our products with what the education was not it wasn't about the presenter relating his education to our product so right. it was that i always found that to be interesting to to de- to get the products to develop the the products that would that would suit the education that was that was needed and um as we were doing it for about five or six years, it was, you know, from that was 92. So about 97, 90 and 98, we came out with our first seminar mm-hmm. and it was, we did it because I felt like, you know, Hey, we're, we're sponsoring a speaker in at all these places. Why not just start doing our own and bringing them in for, and, and for a variety of reasons. One, I'd be with them all day. I, there would just be, there would, they wouldn't be going to an NSCA clinic where there'd be, you know, a hundred different vendors there. It would just, mm. be, it would just be one. We could tailor what the education was, you know, I could try to create the best education because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like we had a board or anything else that we had to, uh, or, or state directors that we had to make happy to come in and speak is we were just looking for what the best education was at the time. Mm. And we bring them in and, um, and again, be around around the customer all day, um, and to sort of try to give them a great experience in education, and obviously be there to develop the relationship afterwards. I don't know if, if this was something you did um, intentionally, or that it just was kind of organic in the way that it was crafted. But how did you make like you you talked about Vern being sort of the first guy you brought in? how did you decide the first time you were going to do a seminar, who you were going to bring in and, and what, what were sort of the important attributes of those people that should. Sure. That sure. Well, the, the very first seminar we did well, along that way in my first five years, one of a seminar that we sponsored um, that we went up to was one at Boston university. It was a, it was a NSCA state clinic mm-hmm. Um that was up at Boston university. And one of the presenters there, and when this was about 94 was Mike Boyle. Hmm. Um, and when I, uh, uh, went and I listened to Mike, it was sort of, Mike was like that, you know, it's, you ever hear someone and all of a sudden just like everything goes off inside. Like you just realize that, wow, who is this guy? What's he about? Like he makes so much sense. Um, you know, it just, it was sort of a first, it was sort of the first one for me, even though Vern was amazing and Vern was a great educator. It was just, Mike was one of the guys that I just, that I hit it off with very well. Mm. Um, and that he, you know, he, what he was saying just made complete sense. And it was sort of like, it was, it was my philosophy that I was, that I didn't even know I had a philosophy. It was just <laughs> sort of tailoring it and, and right. creating it. And it was like, cause it was sort of agreeing with almost everything that he was saying. So, um, we became friends at that time and we, we sort of, uh, we, we did our first video before we even did any education. We decided to do a, a lifting video together, an Olympic lifting video um, that we produced and put together for Mike. Um, and then as, you know, as Mike and I got closer and closer, we talked about putting a seminar together. Now, mm-hmm. Vern was still consulting of ours. So we said, we'll bring Vern in. Um, we'll have Mike do it. We'll start up up in Boston and Mike had a Mike had a young intern at the time who just got the job at Holy Cross, whose name's Jeff Oliver. So I said, and Mike was like, "Hey, let's go, let's go with Jeff. Let's let's put the three of them." And so that was sort of the the first put to of the of the seminars. And I don't know, I don't know exactly how we turned it into 
the format that we have it where we did three lectures in the morning and then we did three rotating hands-on groups in the afternoon. But I don't know if it was a cross between Mike. I don't know if it was because I like some of the hands-ons that we've, that I've seen at other seminars um, that I thought they were very valuable. Um, I think it's probably a combination of everything. And, and it's funny because that first format, which we played around with all over the place and at different times, but at first format seemed to stick and it was sort of seemed to work for us. And it seemed that everyone sort of enjoyed the, the presentations followed by in the afternoon, the hands-on. So mm. that's, that sort of became our stick is these, these hands-on workshops where we would, you know, it wouldn't just come in and do exercise or do a workout. You'd come in and you would learn the X's and O's. You get the presentation, you get the background of everything. And then you'd go in and you would do the hands-on afterwards after you did it. So, and it just seemed that was a, was a perfect fit for us people seemed to enjoy it feedback we got was great on it um and in there we you know we did two more years or three more years of one day seminars we started to expand them you know within three years we the first year in 98 we did or it was actually the end of 90 it was november of 97 but 98 we did two locations and then in 99 i think we branched out and did five cities Hmm. So we just kept, we just kept growing them and said, Hey, okay, we're in Boston. Hey, let's try New Jersey and let's try West coast. Um, we just kept trying some of these, you know, some of these, you know, locations that where we were slowly penetrating in with sales and sort of starting to still develop as a company. Um, what was the biggest early challenge for you guys to make that, make it work? You know, it's it's funny, Scott, we didn't have a challenge because we weren't doing it. We it's funny, we were doing it as a grassroots program. So it's sort of to build to build and develop relationships with our customers, you know, to, through education. Um we, it wasn't about is it gonna pay for itself? We weren't concerned with losing money. We weren't concerned because it was, hey, we're gonna spend money in doing this show over here. Why not do our own? You know, mm-hmm. this is if I'm going to spend 10 grand at a show, I can spend 10 grand alone. You know, I can spend 20 and get 10 grand back and still be mm-hmm. at 10 and still have everything out of it that I wanted. So it wasn't really about turning the, turning a profit at it or making them that it would work. And I think that was sort of, I think that's what sort of made us so successful at it is because it wasn't, I wasn't concerned with that. And it's mm-hmm. sort of, it, that just happened, but it just didn't, it, it was just one of the things that that was all just, extra gravy it wasn't uh anything that we were looking to hey we're we're trying to turn a profit at seminars we never had that vision nor do we still have it that's interesting okay a short break here to tell you about our sponsor reconditioninghq.com reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications Fundamentally, reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatment and training systems more efficient and effective. Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminate any issue that stands in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. Level 2 goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links to the overall preparation program and becomes deeply considered of the context of that program and the environments of preparation. 
Finally, our reconditioning specialist mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home that allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice in a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances, irons out all the question marks, and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see what our next courses are being held and when our next mentorship is starting. Join the reconditioning revolution. I'll always remember you guys coming up to in 99 to Montreal to support the hockey one that we tried. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. That was still, you know, still one of, one of my favorite seminars. And at that time, I believe we sponsored Mike coming up. So we Mm -hmm. were, we were sponsoring and we were following Mike around, you know, doing that. We were doing that at a few different places. And uh, it was a, it was a perfect seminar that you guys put. I remember that. I remember that uh, like it was yesterday. Yeah, I still remember Mike and his wife pushing their little carriage up the McGill Hill with because uh, they just had babies then, their little ones. <laughs> and I was talking the other day, and they're all grown up now. <clears throat> um, tell me about you know Mike. Uh, you you talked about him a little bit earlier, but obviously he's been a, a juggernaut in the um, beginnings of of your um seminar series what has he meant to you as a as a a friend and as a a person that you guys have worked together on this you know sort of from the beginnings yeah you know mike and i talk all the time and it's sort of like i can bounce ideas off of him because the one thing that mike's not going to do is mike's not going to sugarcoat anything for me Mm. you know he's going to tell me you know and 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 mike's mike's got a you know one of mike's really, really strong points is he's got a very good sense of right and wrong, mm. you know, or, you know, or, or, or being a good guy or being a jerk. He's sort of, he's, he's got a really good sense of that. And, um, I always bounce a lot of ideas off of him with, with that of things, what direction to go, what to do. And, and again, it's, you know, whenever I, we come out with a product or we see something, always ask him first because it's, you know, I know Mike is, you know, he's going to tell me exactly, he's not going to tell me, Hey, Oh, it's great product. You know, love it. He's going to tell me exactly what he thinks of it. And then sometimes if, you know, and again, it's not that I'm always listening to Mike. Sometimes there's a lot of things in there that, that I know that I I need to take a little bit more time with Mike and maybe show it a little differently. and, And maybe it's up to me to now change his, if I firmly believe in something. And I have, you know, there's been a few things that, that he first looked at and didn't like, and then it took some time. And then now there's some things that are staples of this thing that do it. But you know, the, the one thing I really do like is, if is, 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 is true. You know, when I, when I talk to him or ask for advice or he, he's, he's not, he's not going to bullshit me. He's going to mm-hmm. tell me exactly what he thinks at that time. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, it's up to me to, if it's something that I believe in, it's I got to find a way to change Mike's mind. That's <laughs> if it's, I got to convince him of it. If, if it's something that he doesn't like. What's been, you know, you've discovered a few people and sort of helped them along in their career with education, guys like Durkin and other people. What, what have been ingredients in their character or their approach that have um, kind of been sensitized in you that you feel they're, they're people you want to support and you want to, to help, help them and their careers grow? You know, it's, it's, it's a really, I mean, 
I, I always say that their careers grew. I just, they were going to grow. I just, mm -hmm. I just gave them a fast pass. I gave them the speed lane of, of putting them in front of more people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one, if, 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 if they're a good presenter and they have good information um, and they're not a jerk, they're going to, you know, and, and, and they can develop their presentation. Usually it takes, a, you know, sometimes it takes a couple of years for people to develop their presentation and their style and whatnot. But they all start with great information. I always say everybody we put up on stage has great information, mm -hmm. you know, from what determines the next step to them is that it's almost that it's how do they make their presence on stage? Do mm -hmm. people feel very comfortable with them? Um, can they get them to laugh? Can they get them to cry? Can they get them to, you know, change their thought pattern? You know, because if they can't get them to change their thought pattern, they can't get an emotion on them. And it's just strictly, it's just strictly information. They're going to be really good, but they're not going to be, they're not going to get to that exceptional level except unless they make that contact with the person, mm -hmm. unless they hit them somewhere where it's going to make it. And, um, you know, like I said, I always say that they they would eventually be the great ones will always be great. It just will probably take a little longer. If I can fast pass them and get them on stage in front of, you know, you know, we just we did the numbers to this year's seminars. And, and with a few more to go with that, uh, that we're going to be at close to 5000 different attendees with all of our seminars this year that we've yeah. that we've been in front of. So if, if, if I can get that contact with with some of these presenters and get that many um, it's only going to boom because then they're going to go back they're going to talk and they're going to, they're going to recommend them to somebody. Mm -hmm. So I, like I said, it's, it's, it's really is, it's, it's, I truly believe that, 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 you know, whoever it is that we've ever done with, they were all going to be great. There's no doubt about it. Um, the only thing that I, you can say that I really helped them with is I probably expressed it a little bit quicker. I, I, I helped them move that, a little bit faster by getting them in front of more people. What's been the, the most powerful internal reward to you from the years of doing this? Like what, what do you not get out of it, but what, how does it inspire you or make you feel good about what you do? Honestly, with the different presenters, with seeing how successful they become and what they're doing, it's sort of is it's, it's, it's very rewarding for me. It's, it's rewarding for me to see a speaker go from not speaking anywhere to being wanted to speak all over the world. You know, to me, that's like, that's, that's sort of like, I, and again, it's sort of corny -ish to say, but it's, I, re I really feel like gratified when I see them. I was down in Brazil this past weekend with Mike Boyle and Mike Mullen and Sue Falcone and, and Robert Dos Remedios and Kevin Carr and, and, um, I, you know, I, I, those guys have just, you know, from when they started with our first seminar with a lot of them have not, you know, being up on stage for maybe one or two times before and speaking to maybe a hundred people are now known in Brazil, you know, mm -hmm. and, and cheered on in Brazil. It's sort of like, that was really gratifying. It was like, mm -hmm. you know, knowing that, Hey, I wasn't the reason that happened, but I was sort of part of, part of the express pass of how it, how it happened. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to read you a thing that I do as a, out of my book, which is called the day you were born. It talks about, um, your, your sign and then the, the day you're born and it gives the person a purpose. So you're an Aquarius three 
And uh, <clears throat> your purpose is to take that inner voice that says you are special and have a calling and unite it with earth, your earthly voice in order to manifest a dream. Many a man has found the acquisition of wealth only a change, not an end of miseries. Aquarius threes are born with a great deal of strength and strong sense of purpose. Their job is to activate their strength through learning, to believe in themselves, and to discover their spiritual path that will bring them happiness and reward beyond earthly success. Although they may feel like orphans, the roots of Aquarius threes are anchored both deep in the earth and high above the heaven. Nothing seems impossible. The greater the challenge, the more they're interested. This can be dangerous if they take too much on before they're old enough to handle it. Early failure can be a cause, a lack of trust in their own ability. Aquarius threes have a love of freedom, a fear of commitment, and a desire to be the boss. They run their own business or work independently. They have the ability to influence and make others see their point of view. They might be gurus, super salesmen, actors, or inventors. They should remember that their mission is not to control others, but to help them become strong and secure in their own opinions. Hmm. There you go. Wow. A little piece of you. <laughs> little, little piece of me there, yeah. I, I heard some threads in there. <laughs> there's, there's sections of everything you said that I can relate to, yeah. Biting off more than they can chew. Yeah, that was me when I was 22 taking a head coaching job. That's <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about, um, you know, being a, a husband and, um, you know, meeting your wife at this in this process and then, you know, becoming a dad, how all that sort of rolls while you're trying to build this business and be sort of the, the, the father to all these people's careers, so to speak, as they're, they're educating the masses, you know, it was, was it challenging to be a dad and be a husband at the same time as do all this? You know, so me and my wife were, me and my wife are high school sweethearts. So mm. we basically, I, I, you know, we've been together for 35 years. We've been married for 28. Wow. Um, but uh, we, we, I, since I was a junior in high school, mm. we've been, we've been dating and we have, uh, we have four kids. My oldest is a daughter. She's, she's a teacher. She's teaches up in Massachusetts. Um, I have, uh, uh, three boys. Um, my oldest boy is actually now working for us. He just graduated from Springfield college, mm. um, in May. He's now working for us and he's, we have him doing all different things. He'll eventually be in sales, but he's been doing installs and a little bit of everything. He's been working in, during the summer here for the last three years as well. Um, my uh, middle boy is a junior at um, LaSalle College, or it's actually LaSalle University now, which is right outside of Boston. Mm. He's studying business. And my youngest is actually a freshman at UNH, um, playing football at UNH. Um, which is uh, surprising because he's an offensive lineman, which is a complete different size category than I am. So <laughs> the height and the size. <laughs> he's six. He's six three. Where I'm probably on my toes at five ten. Where did he get that from? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Blood test was always recommended to me to like to see, uh, but you know, it's. It's he's he's having a good career and he had a great high school career. So I sort of like put a hold on the blood test and still try to like say, Hey, that was, that was for me. But uh, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> what's your, what's your greatest joy in, in, in your children? What brings you your greatest joy? You know, um, it's, it's funny. I, 
and, and I talked about this with Mike Boyle last week. And one of the things is whenever I'm around, they, they were all athletes. So seeing them play, you know, any, I, I don't think at, I never, I'd actually, I know I never did. I never missed a game that I was around for that they played no matter what level, whether it was rec, whether it was, you know, five-year-old soccer, hmm. you know, I just never, there was, you know, I never ever missed them playing in any type of sporting event or any activity that they did. So probably biggest joy would probably be seeing them, seeing them at, participate in sports and, you know, or, or athletics, but um, most importantly, probably is seeing and seeing them, they're all really good kids. So, you know, I'm very fortunate in that sense that they're, they're, they're good kids. And that's probably the most, you know, obviously it's not probably, it is the most important thing that they're, mm. you know, they're just, I have, I have always this rule of, of, you know, no D bags, you know, and, and don't be one. You know? <laughs> I don't know if it's on the podcast, but. Well, oh, you didn't say the whole term. So we're yeah, okay. Exactly. And I don't get, I don't get the explicit on the end of my podcast. <laughs> Just don't be a jerk. You know, nobody <laughs> likes a jerk. So, yeah. and, and that's sort of my try to, you know, I don't want to hang around with jerks. I don't want to be around them. I just, you know, put yourself around good people and, and hopefully that they do that themselves too. And I think they have for the most part. That's awesome. Tell me about what you've seen, how, how you've seen the industry of human performance change over the last 30 years. I mean, what, what, it, you know, you've been in it and watched it just like the equipment, the materials, the, the all these different seminars, the subject matter, et cetera. What's, what's been most impressive about that for you and what, um, what maybe hasn't changed or has kind of stayed the same that you kind of are, are curious about? You know, well, you know, back in the early nineties, it was, you know, obviously the big boom of the, the, the functional training sort of stuck mm -hmm. in, but it's, you know, I can, you know, Vern Gambetta was, 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 you know, one of his biggest compliments I can give him is he was sort of the forefront of that, you know, movement. Um, and sort of taught me a lot about functional training and I learned about functional training a lot. Now, obviously we had the, you know, the mid two thousands or early two thousands, 2005, four, where it sort of got into a circus act and it sort of got a little bit crazy mm. with, in the name of function, um, <laughs> which is never where any of them had it intended, but I can, you know, I can remember going back to 92 and seeing, you know, at a, at a building and rebuilding the athlete, and with Vern talking about function and, and seeing 20, 30 minute discussions with people about fighting it, you know, just, mm. you know, and it, it was sort of, uh, when you look back at it now, it's almost like it's, you know, it just makes too much sense. It's just too, it's, it's too common of what it does. And obviously in, in performance, we've seen where it has come. I mean, I don't, you know, we call them isolationists. And I don't think there are any of them around anymore. I don't think anyone isolates a muscle anymore in the form of sports performance. I just, it's, if, if, if they are, you know, I, I they got to have an incredible athlete that's just, you know, way beyond he's, he's <laughs> because he's just exceptional. But you just, wherever you see all these programs, you see, you know, people training and, and you see what they're doing. you like, you come to think like, Hey, you know, we were doing that long before, long before mm -hmm. everybody else did. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, I always tell people there's a few things that 
that I wish we'd had, you know, either copyrighted because we've been in front a lot of really good people. You know, the mini bands, which are, are very, very common today, Scott, you know, the mini bands came, you know, that mini band warm up came from Bergamba. That was, mm. you know, and now it's all over the world. Like in Brazil, they're calling it the Brazilian butt lift. And, you know, they just, it's, it's just so many names, but it's, it's, it, 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 it is the most popular piece of equipment in the fitness or performance world. I mean, it's, hmm. I mean, it's, you can't find a place that really doesn't use mini bands. Yeah. Um, the foam roller. I can remember how the foam roller started. You know, it's, they started with, they were, they were Feldenkrais. They were about balance and alignment. They were about standing on and kneeling on it. Hmm. You know, it was that whole Feldenkrais thing. And that's how we got into it until one day in the back of the room at lunchtime and at a seminar in Vern Gambetta's where a guy by the name of Mike Clark was, Vern grabbed a medicine ball and was rolling on a medicine ball. Mike grabbed the foam roller and was rolling on the foam roller. You know, one, six months later, Mike had a whole program built on basically on myofascial release. And, <laughs> you know, that hence the start of the foam roller, which is now, I don't think you can go to a part of the country or the world that, they're not doing myofascial release, you know. Do you so. remember the first time you saw a stability ball? I do. I do. And that's come a whole roundabout way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, somebody asked me this question a while ago about what was probably the most influential piece of equipment around, you know, and I still say it was either like, it was either the foam roller or the minivan. Um, mm -hmm. And I probably would probably tend, it, it was more, a performance thing, I would probably go more towards the roller because I think the roller in some form, maybe not the roller, but the roller started the myofascial stuff. I mean, it started now the buzz of all these massage tools and everything else that have become so popular over the last four or five years. Mm. It was really, they're taking off from, from the roller of what people were doing with the roller. I mean, there's always been massage, but a massage people were only ones that could afford massage. Mm. They were only the high level teams that could have a massage therapist. Here again with another word from our sponsors, Zenkai Sports, who want to let you in on a little secret. Performance apparel hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. Most apparel is still based on moisture-wicking synthetics, which not only make you more overheat faster, but are toxic for your body and the environment. Synthetics don't biodegrade, so that stinky workout shirt you have to throw out after six months, it lasts for thousands of years in landfills. Zenkai is the only cotton-based training apparel on the market, keeping your body safe from those scary petroleum-based synthetics found in most workout gear and giving you that extra edge when it counts. Be a part of the solution and join the revolution for better apparel technology at www.zenkaisports.com. What's in your ZNA? For 20% off your entire order, please use the discount code LYM20. Tell me about the relationships with all these great people. Like, do you, you know, what has been the most rewarding part of getting to know these, these great human beings who are leaders in their craft. Uh, how is it, how has it uh, affected you or contributed to you as a person? You know, they're, they're, they're all good people, or at least the people that we're associated with. They're all people that are not going to run away from questions in the hallway when someone after they hear them speak wants to go up and talk to them. You know, they're all people who enjoy talking shop mm -hmm. to everyone in the hallway. Um, you know, and that sort of, to me, that sort of, I, I, they really influence me in that standpoint, but I can always rely on them to, if there's questions that come up, 
you know, if there's if there's questions I have on product or if there's people that I think, hey, you know, I want to get their feedback on this. Is this something that you would promote or is it something that you believe in? Um, and usually if it's something that they don't believe in or something they don't like, we sort of stay away from it. And sometimes it takes, you know, it takes three, four, sometimes it's taking 20, 30 calls to make to some of the presenters to see to get to get everyone's feedback. Mm. Um, it's even, you know, I even do that with presenters. You know, I do that with presenters, with possible new presenters coming in. Um, I just, you know, I, I was just doing it two days ago. <laughs> I was asking somebody about, you know, a couple presenters that are, that want to come in that I thought were really interested and I wanted to get some feedback on them. Um, unfortunately, one of them wasn't the feedback that I, <laughs> that mm. I was hoping for. It was sort of, it was more of a jerk type of thing mm. and sort of, you know, to me, that's, you know, that's the one rule that we have. I just don't want a jerk rule. I want, you know, mm-hmm. good people. Um, um, obviously, good information. But like I said, there's everyone that we put up on stage has good information. That's mm-hmm. the, that's, everybody has great information. They wouldn't have been, you know, I wouldn't have selected them if they didn't have good information. So you've been in this in- industry, you reminded me before uh, by correcting your bio, but some 27 years, what's, what do you, what do you see for yourself in the next 10 years? What do you, where are you hoping that perform better and yourself personally go in the next 10, 10 you years? You know, me personally, it, it's funny. I've been asked that a couple of times about retirement. I, I, I love doing what I'm doing. Hmm. I love getting up every day um, and coming in and doing what I have to do. It's, it's, the only time I ever look at a clock is when it's at the end of the day and I'm upset that I only have an hour left and I could use four more hours. So um, <laughs> that's the, you know, I've never really, I, I've never, you know, unless I have to be somewhere or I had a kid's game or I had an appointment to go to, I, I've, I've never really worked off of a clock. I'm here till I need to get done when I get done. And sometimes it's eight o'clock, sometimes it's six o'clock hmm. at night. Um, sometimes it's the weekend, sometimes, you know, it just, I, I never really, I, I don't put a, I don't put a timestamp on it. And, um, for me, that's what makes it so much enjoyable. You know, it, it's, it's, I love doing what I'm doing. Um, what, what, what do you love about what you do? I just, I, I, I love the people I deal with. Mm. I, I love the association to good coaches, to good trainers, um, to good, you know, rehab specialists. Um, I love learning from them every day is always, I always tell people every day is a learning experience. I learn something new every single day. Awesome. What would be your, your piece of advice to a young up and coming performance professional now? Cause you know, I've, I've had this question to me many times and I'm curious with you sort of looking at the industry itself and not necessarily being a, a performance practitioner, but seeing people doing their job. Um, you know, there's so much information out there now. Yeah. Uh, accessibility information is huge. And so at this point in the development curve, what's, what's your biggest piece of advice to young people who want to want to work in the human performance industry and be successful? You know, I, I, it's Mike Boyle says this all the time when he talks about his, his cheating principles and cheat off of other coaches and take the good. And I, I really have to agree with that. I think that's really, really good advice. Follow, follow some great coaches who have had some great success, Mm -hmm. you know, and not just great athletes, great success along the way. I mean, it's just, 
just because someone has a great athlete doesn't make them a great coach. I mean, it could have been a great athlete before they started coaching them. But follow the ones that have had continued success. Follow the ones that basically have low injury rates that don't, you know, that they keep athletes healthy. Mm-hmm. Follow what they're doing. Learn from what they're doing. Educate themselves. There's nothing wrong with taking information from from somebody or an exercise that someone's doing. Um, I think nowadays too many people want to create their own system or they want to create something new. And it's, it's, you know, it's very difficult right now. You got to be really on the edge if you want to create something new. And the problem with being on that edge is you can teeter totter one way or the other too easily. Hmm. And um, unfortunately, most of the time with teetering, it comes in the form of injury. Um, So you know, my advice would be is to follow the great ones, see what they're doing, see what they all have in common, see what their philosophy is. Mm. Um, use that. Use that to develop your own philosophy. Um, and most of the time, it's usually going to create around something that's very, very similar. Because I think all the great ones have something very similar in common. Mm. You know, and, and um, I've always can you, can you identify that? Is there something that yeah. you identify in that? Yeah. What is that? I, I can. I think all the great ones have a connection with their athletes. Mm. I think they get their athletes to believe in them. Mm. You know, I think that's really, and that's probably first and foremost, all the, all the really, really good coaches who've had really good success can, can get their athletes to buy into their program and they believe in them and they fully believe in whatever they do. Um, mm. And that's, 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 that's key. That is awesome. really key. Last question. You, you know, you run into Chris Poirier, who's, who's kind of in this quagmire of coaching at this, maybe bit off more than he could chew. What would be your advice to, to him? <laughs> <laughs> do it the right way. Do it, do it. You know, there, there is, that's, that's why there are steps, you know, and there's mm-hmm. steps at the bottom. That's why every house is built with a foundation first. Mm-hmm. Um, Big, big believer in that. You can't, you know, you can't skip any steps. Mm. You know, if you skip some, they're just going to come back to haunt you if you don't, if you don't fully develop at those steps. Mm. Um, it did to me. I mean, I, you know, I, there's so much more I could have learned about coaching that probably would have still made me coaching today if I, if I went through those steps. Um, you know, it, it, take your time. Obviously, everybody wants to be, you know, everybody wants to be at the top level right away. And sometimes it's not, you know, just be careful wishing that, <laughs> you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with going the whole progression route, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, I think obviously my career would have been a little bit different, you know, if, if I did, I'm not, I'm not unhappy that I didn't because I love doing what I'm doing. And I'm sort of glad that I probably didn't go through those progressions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure if I did, I probably would have loved coaching today. I would have mm-hmm. gotten the full development of it. And we're gonna love doing what I'm doing. Uh, love doing that. And so that's, I, I think that's, that's a really key. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to uh, end this great conversation. I, I totally appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate you, Chris. Uh, you, you know, you've been somebody who's really been great um, advocate for this industry and the people in the industry and you continue to be a leader. So it was wonderful to have you on the show and uh Look forward to bouncing into you again many times over as uh, as our career paths uh, cross looking, as they have in the past. Looking forward to it, Scott. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story. 
taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.